Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 61. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on February 26, 2022, in Austin, Texas. As previously reported, I was supposed to be in New Orleans for Mardi Gras this weekend, but other circumstances conspired to keep me away. They also conspired to delay me a bit on this episode. I usually don't talk about current events. History podcasts are first about history, and second, they have a long duration. People listen to history podcast episodes years after they were recorded. So current events lose their relevance. And it's not why you come here anyway. But before we get to the history part of this week's episode, I do want to say a word about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. First, I have many acquaintances in Ukraine, and at least a few listeners, because in the last three years, I have taught a couple of week-long courses on entrepreneurship at the Business School of Ukrainian Catholic University in Lviv. I was both struck and energized by the overt patriotism, not only of the students, but of the faculty. They have an undisguised pride in their city and country and wanted very much to know that I liked Ukraine. I hope that love of country sustains them in the coming months. It must also be said that they made me long for the days when American university students and faculty, or frankly any Americans, would openly express love of country. If you feel it, you should say it, it seems to me. There's nothing unfashionable about it. Lviv is a town with entertaining craft breweries. The beers are excellent and perhaps $3, so a good time on a budget. It boasts more miles of cobblestone streets than any city in the world. One of my favorite bars there is a speakeasy. In order to get in, you have to prove you aren't Russian, perhaps by showing an American passport. Once inside the vestibule, a grumpy man dressed in World War II partisan gear with a presumably unloaded Kalashnikov slung over his shoulder hands each guest a robust shot of Ukrainian vodka, which you must shoot for admission to the bar. The theory being, no Russian would drink Ukrainian vodka. Once your non-Russian bona fides are established, you're cleared to enter. You descend a staircase into an old storm sewer, which apparently actually was a hideout for Ukrainian partisans. All the servers are dressed as guerrillas, with bandoliers of ammunition over their shoulders. This is a reminder that it was not so long ago that Ukrainians hid underground and fought like hell against a ruthless enemy. Second, I fear that this will be one of those moments that we look back on for decades as having changed the world, as we do the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand in Sarajevo in 1914, or the fascist attacks on Spain, Poland, China, and finally the United States in the early years of World War II. Of all the crises since at least the Korean War, Russia's attack on Ukraine this week seems to transgress the post-war international order more than any other. In this case, there was in the end not even an insincere assertion that it was lawful. 
Vladimir Putin offered not even a fig leaf casus belli, even by the standards of 1914 or even 1939, astonishing as that may be to say, much less 1946 or 2022. The civilized nations of the world, and I use the word civilized specifically, now have an opportunity to show whether they have any serious people left in charge will rise in defense of the post-war international order. If any emerge, we should do our best to support them, even if we otherwise might not agree with them or vote for them. Of course, there is risk for me in making any claim about Ukraine this week, because it is in the nature of a history podcast, as I said, that people will listen to these episodes years from now. Some whippersnapper will have to write a paper on Champlain. Yeah, yeah, not likely today, but every pendulum swings. And he or she will hear my ruminations on the invasion of Ukraine and think that I got everything wrong. If I do, that doesn't mean I'm wrong about everything. The invasion of Ukraine is current events to me, and everybody is wrong about current events. The conceit that journalism is the first draft of history is exactly that, a conceit. Journalism is the raw material of history. History is the process by which we understand current events with a perspective of time and the revelation of information that simply is not available in the moment it occurs. And as you will see later in the episode, we have learned new things about Samuel de Champlain at least as recently as 399 years after the fact. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. The best way to support what we are doing here is to tell your friends, either the old-fashioned way or on your social propaganda website of choice, or write a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. But especially just tell your friends. That means the most by a long shot. I'll confess that I had originally intended to blow through Champlain in one episode, but as I got to know him and understand his significance for the history of the Americans, I went a little deeper. The last two episodes helped us, or at least me, understand Samuel de Champlain the man and the context in which he went to New France in 1603. So if you have not heard those recently or at all, you might do those before you do this. This episode will take us to the coast of Maine in 1604 and include both Champlain's first settlement in North America in today's Maine and three explorations down the coast of New England. Norumbega to you cool kids. In 1604, 1605, and 1606. Last time we covered the voyage of Pontgrave and Champlain up the St. Lawrence in the summer of 1603. They reached the site of today's Montreal, and along the way, Champlain would establish a friendship with the Algonquin Montagnier tribe along the northern bank of that great river, trade for furs, and hear of lakes and rivers to the south in today's New York State, and to the west, including the Great Lakes and the Detroit River. The expedition would depart Canada in August and be back in France by mid-September 1603. 
At some point along the way, Champlain had found the time to write a book, which quite remarkably cleared the censors only eight weeks after the good renown got back to France. The book had the dramatic title, Des Sauvages ou Voyage de Samuel Champlain, which in the vernacular means The Savages or The Voyage of Samuel de Champlain. Long-standing and attentive listeners will recall that the term savages as used by the French and even the English in the early 1600s was not derogatory. It commonly referred to dwelling in the forest with nature, a description rather than as the justification for oppression or some expression of contempt. This was only the first of numerous books and publications that Champlain would produce over the next 30 years. Henry IV's royal commissioner for New France recalled that Champlain lacked the social standing to be the top dog, notwithstanding his close relationship with the king. Amon de Chaste had died while Champlain was away. Chaste had been brilliant and humane, loved and followed, so his loss was both a personal blow and had the potential to set back Champlain's vision, which had been Chaste's vision of New France. Fortunately, there was a worthy successor. Henry IV appointed another man of Saint-Ange, Pierre Dugois-sur-de-Mont, to succeed Chaste. Champlain and Sur-de-Mont went right to work, building the case for a permanent settlement in New France. While the two men were close and worked together well, they disagreed over the optimal location for France's first permanent settlement. Champlain favored building the settlement in the fertile lands and among the hospitable Indians far up the St. Lawrence between Quebec and Montreal. Sir de Mont, who outranked Champlain both bureaucratically and socially, preferred the Atlantic coast, some place in the land that had come to be known as Acadia, today's Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and Maine. In Sir de Mont's thinking, Acadia was much closer to France, and its southern reaches were the same latitude as his home of Saint-Ange. Champlain, always the team player, signed on notwithstanding his enthusiasm for Quebec, and the two of them set to pitching their case to Henry. By mid-November 1603, just as Champlain's book was going to press, the two had Henry's backing to build a French settlement on the coast of New Brunswick or Maine. Champlain and Sir de Mont spent the winter and spring of 1604 recruiting something like 200 men, hiring two ships, and buying supplies. No complete roster of the expedition survives, but it included nobles of various ranks and gentlemen, soldiers including a detachment of Swiss mercenaries, the toughest hombres of their era, experienced mariners, skilled artisans, and more than a hundred workers. The artisans included surgeons, apothecaries, carpenters, sawyers, masons, blacksmiths, gunners, armorers, and locksmiths. These last were expert in the repair of gun locks. At Henry's specific request, they brought along two master miners who would know how to look for and identify precious metals. And in the spirit of inclusiveness and diversity, the notional Protestant de Mont and the notional Catholic Champlain recruited a Protestant minister and a Catholic priest. 
their hostility for each other would reach almost comic levels. And when they both died in the rough winter ahead, Champlain would record that the men of the colony buried them in the same grave as if in a timeless embrace. The French sense of irony is not of recent vintage. There was also a group of designated hunters. David Hackett Fisher speculates that these hunters may have been gamekeepers on country estates in France. In New France, they would be loners, spending as much time as possible in the open air, ranging across the countryside. Attentive and long-standing listeners will recall that up to this point, there is no record, at least none that I have stumbled across, of the Spanish or the English bringing professional hunters to North America. And more than one instance of them starving on account of their inability to capture food on foot or wing all around them. That Champlain and Sir de Mont thought to bring along designated hunters is one of those innovations that in retrospect seems obvious, but at the time, not so much. There was another character along Aubert's mentioning, one Mathieu de Costa. In French documents, he is described as black and of African origin and is said to have spoken the languages of Acadia. We do not know how he learned them. His name suggests that he was baptized somewhere in the Spanish or Portuguese world, and somehow he must have found himself in Acadia. Fisher suggests that da Costa may have been shipwrecked on the coast or escaped captors, if he had been enslaved or impressed, or perhaps he was marooned by an angry captain. Now quoting Fisher, However it happened, Matu da Costa appears to have been an African who lived for a time among the Indians of Acadia and learned to speak their Algonquin language. His services were much sought by merchants in the American trade. On at least one occasion, he appears to have been kidnapped by Dutch corsairs. The Sir de Mont was able to hire him and later became involved in litigation with other men who wanted to cost his skills. Unfortunately, that is close to all we know. A search of all the papers in JSTOR.org revealed exactly one that referred to Matuta da Costa, which is a great shame because he must have lived a fascinating life. The two ships, the Good Renown again and the Don de Dieu, the gift of God in the vernacular, were ready to leave France by early April. The ships were well-provisioned with victuals for a year and every bit of hardware they might need, including the prefabricated parts of boats for shore work. Their mission was similar to that of the Virginia Company expeditions to Maine and Virginia in 1607, which we've already covered, to establish an outpost that could serve for trading and as a springboard for subsequent settlement, rather than a colony that could increase naturally. Pretty hard to do that with no women along. They made a fast crossing, reaching the coast of Acadia by May 8, 1604, a bit southwest of today's Halifax, Nova Scotia. They made their way southwest, investigating various harbors. In each case, they decided that landings on the Atlantic coast of Nova Scotia, however appealing in other respects, would be too prominent, and therefore at risk of attack by Spain. France and Spain were still at peace, but Nova Scotia was over the line, and there was no peace over the line. Sir de Mont and Champlain did not want to make the same mistake as René Laudonniere at Fort Caroline. 
Along the way around the coast of Nova Scotia, they encountered a French ship under the command of Jean de Rossignol of Le Havre, trading for furs with the local Micmac people. Sodemont confronted Rossignol for being in violation of the monopoly Henry IV had given him for the fur trade in the region. And when Rossignol figuratively, or maybe even literally, flipped him the bird, that gesture dates from ancient Greece, so he might have done, Demont seized his ship and tossed Rossignol in the brig. This moment, amazingly enough, still survives in the oral tradition of the Micmac people who still live in the region. Fisher's account is worth a small digression. Quote, the event was recorded in the early 20th century by a Métis guide named Henry Peters. Well, said he, speaking of Champlain's vessel, they came into Liverpool one time and there was a ship there that wasn't supposed to be. They boarded the ship and there was just the mate and cook on board. Well, they had to tell where the captain and crew were. They were upriver trading with the Indians, which they didn't have permission from the governor to do. Well, when the traders came down the river, they waylaid them and took the canoes of fur and the crew. They thought they got them all. Rossignol was the captain, and that's where Lake Rossignol, the largest lake in Nova Scotia, got its name. Peters remembered that two of Rossignol's seamen were named Peter and Charles. They slipped over the side of their canoe and swam to shore underwater to keep from being shot. So where were they to go? They went back up the river to Kedji. This was a Micmac community on islands in Lake Rossignol, a bit more than 20 miles from the coast. Peters recalled that each Micmac family had its own island. The two European seamen took Indian wives, but no islands were left for them, so they settled on the lake shore at places that came to be called Peters Point and Charles Point. Henry Peters himself was descended from the seaman named Peter and learned the story from his father, who had heard it from his father. It describes a process by which a unique population began to grow in Acadia as early as 1604, a mix of Indians, French, English, Scots, Basques, Portuguese, and Africans. Back to me. This population came to be known as the Métis and are today recognized as indigenous people of Canada. They are their own interesting story outside of the mandate of this podcast, but I'll put a link to the Wikipedia entry in the show notes for those of you who want to go deeper. The ship sailed farther to the southwest to today's Port Mouton, named by Champlain because a sheep, Mouton in French in the origin of the English word mutton, fell overboard there. The harbor still bears that name. The Sir de Mont decided to use the harbor as a base and dispatch two of the now-assembled shallops in opposite directions to explore. Champlain was given the southern route and explored the rocky coast of Nova Scotia past today's Yarmouth into the Bay of Fundy and around to St. Mary's Bay. You can see that this is quite a schlep in a small open boat. A nostalgic aside here, those of you who loved paging through the Guinness Book of World Records as kids might remember that the Bay of Fundy has the highest tides in the world. 
On Champlain's return to Port Mouton, Sir de Mont announced he wanted to see the area for himself. At some point in June, he and Champlain and a small crew headed out again in the shallop, this time determined to investigate the entire coast of the Bay of Fundy. They again sailed into St. Mary's Bay and then kept moving around, first to today's Annapolis Basin and then to the much larger Minas Basin. From there, they swung around west by southwest to today's St. John, New Brunswick, and finally down the coast to Passamaquoddy Bay, which sits along the coast at the border between New Brunswick and Maine. The St. Croix River, which in those parts is the border of the United States and Canada, flows into the western side of the bay. The shallop headed up the river and at that point entered today's United States and thereby legitimized this episode and the last two under the rules of the podcast, at least according to the sole judge and jury in such matters. Some 20 miles in from the Atlantic, they came upon a small island around five acres in size, covered with trees. Here's Fisher's description. Quote, the island was a natural fortress, eight or nine hundred paces in circumference. On three sides, it had granite cliffs, 20 to 30 feet high, so steep as to be virtually impassable. On the fourth side of the island, facing downstream, they found a small crescent beach of sand and clay, guarded by granite rocky outcrops called nubbles, which could bear the weight of ramparts and cannon. The island was attractive in other ways. In June, it looked lush and very fertile. Champlain and the Sir de Mont explored the banks of both rivers and found good ground for farming and flowing streams of fresh water, excellent sites for mills and a good head of water and an abundance of timber. Upstream, they found deposits of copper ore, sand, clay, and building stone. The river teemed with alewives, bass, and shad. At low tide, Champlain found plenty of shellfish, such as clams, mussels, sea urchins, and sea snails, which were of great benefit to everyone. So that was it then. This would be the site of the first settlement of New France. They named the island St. Croix. Today it lies a mere 1,700 feet on the American side of the international boundary, on the main side of the river today, U.S. Highway 1 meanders by, ending around 150 miles to the north at the top of Maine, or a couple of thousand miles to the south at Key West. Unfortunately, the Sir de Mont and Champlain chose poorly, but we'll get to that. The good renown and the gift of God soon joined the leaders of the expedition, and the men went to work very productively over the next two months. That their first step was to fortify the island is more evidence that security was the top priority. They built a barricade and emplacements for cannon. They cut down the island's trees, except for a ring around the shore and one big one that would sit in the middle of the settlement's central square. They built a big storehouse with a stone foundation and walls of timber covered with shingles. A governor's house went up with a great fireplace built of brick brought from France and heavy doors and window casements also imported. They built other houses and a bakery, a kitchen, a blacksmith shop, and a carpenter's shop. Champlain and the other gentlemen pitched in 
and built their own houses, no doubt with the help of the laborers brought along. But he worked side by side with the working men, a far cry from the Tofts at Jamestown a few years down the road with a Spanish gentleman on the Narvice expedition, both of whom had to be threatened with a no-work, no-food-for-you order. It would be another 180 years or so before the French would come up with liberty, egalité, and fraternity. But Champlain and the other men under his command understood the fraternity part already. The French cleared fields on the banks of the river and planted crops which sprouted well. Such gardens planted on the island itself, however, largely failed, unable to flourish in the sandy mid-river soil. And an Indian settlement sprang up on one of the banks, and the French built them a chapel. We do not know what the Indians thought of this. Maybe Matu de Costa suggested that they just play along. However, that might be said in Algonquin. In September, the Sodomont ordered the gift of God and the captured French ship home with most of the workers. He and Champlain stayed behind on St. Croix Island with 79 men. They were at roughly the same latitude as their home region of Saintonge on the Bay of Biscay in France. And so we can forgive them for expecting the weather to be similar. They were shocked when the first snow fell in October. The winter would be epic. The St. Croix River froze by early December. Then it would warm and the tide would break up the ice, and then it would freeze again. The jagged ice skate prevented any movement to the shore. The cider and wine froze except for some fortified Spanish wine. Their only source of water was melted snow. Fortunately, they had a lot of that because three feet of it fell in early January, burying the small settlement. Their only food was dried provisions and salted meat. By midwinter, scurvy set in and the settlers began to die. The surgeons didn't know why, so they performed autopsies on the bodies, but found no cause they understood. Champlain's account of this was confirmed only in 2003, when forensic pathologists examined remains discovered on the island by archaeologists. According to Fisher, they were impressed by the skill of the French surgeons 399 years earlier. Champlain believed, correctly, that scurvy was a dietary disease, but he thought it came from excess salt rather than the absence of fruit and vegetables. It would still be decades before it would be widely understood that eating citrus fruit in particular would cure scurvy, and vitamin C would not be isolated until the 20th century. But long-standing listeners of the podcast know that experienced sailors had solved the problem elsewhere. On his circumnavigation in 1578 and again in 1580, Francis Drake stopped an outbreak of scurvy in the Strait of Magellan, by sending his men into the woods to find edible greens and cooking them with seaweed and oysters in a stew. A second time on the west coast of Africa, after his impossibly long run from Indonesia across the Indian Ocean, Drake went ashore for fresh fruit to feed his scurvy-ridden sailors. When spring finally arrived in 1605, 35 of the 79 French on St. Croix Island had died and another 20 were at death's door. The only men who were in truly good health at winter's end were the professional hunters who had come along. 
A Jesuit priest who later talked with the survivors wrote, Of all the men of Sir de Mont who wintered first at St. Croix, only 11 remained in good health. These were the hunters who much preferred the chase to the air of the fireside, running actively to lying passively in bed, setting traps in the snow for wild game, to sitting around the fire, talking of Paris and its great chefs. Then, as now, fresh air and exercise made a big difference. St. Croix was defensible, but also a trap. At five acres, it was much too small to support so many men, and its inaccessibility backfired horrifically. Rather than keeping enemies out, it kept the settlers confined. But Champlain and the Sir de Mont had made the decision together, and neither pointed the finger at the other. They banked the very painful lesson they had learned and moved on. They would move the settlement to a site in Nova Scotia they called Port Royal in 1605. If you're looking at a searchable map, it was on the northern shore of the Annapolis Basin, where the Annapolis River flows in. While the St. Croix Island settlement waxed and then waned, to put it delicately, and then decamped to Port Royal, Champlain made three trips along the coast of New England in 1604, 1605, and 1606. He led the first voyage himself, served under the Sieur de Mont in the second, and the third under Jean de Biancourt, Sieur de Pontrincourt, one of New France's most important patrons in 1606. These three expeditions resulted in different outcomes that reflected their different commanding officers, and in the end, led the French to abandon the region. That vacuum would open the way for future English settlements in New England. On September 2, 1604, Champlain departed from St. Croix Island and sailed downriver toward the Atlantic. His ship was a patache, a small but decked-over sailing ship of 17 to 18 tons, perhaps 40 feet long and with a draft of 5 feet. He had a crew of 12 sailors, a couple of servants, a gunner, a carpenter, and a couple of arquebusiers, perhaps 20 European men in all and a month of supplies to feed them. He also had along two Echeman Indians to serve as guides, and they had a birch bark canoe to use alongside a couple of the ship's small rowboats. There was fog on the coast, so Champlain moved a few miles from shore to lower the risk of running aground. About 20 miles south by southwest from the mouth of the St. Croix River, Champlain came across a cluster of rocky islets covered with thousands of Atlantic puffins. A hilarious-looking bird. Find yourself a Google image. They're pretty cool. The islands themselves are known today as Machaya Seal Island, and they are the subject of a persistent territorial dispute between the United States and Canada that, I kid you not, began with an ambiguity in Jay's Treaty of 1794. Today, the debate is mostly fanned by local politicians on both sides, with a dose of posturing over overfishing in the gray zone between the two countries. There's a Wikipedia entry that covers all of it. Not surprisingly, I find the whole thing hilarious. 
By September 5th, 1604, Champlain had reached a big island near the coast covered in low mountains with rocky tops. He named the island Mount Desert Island, or at least that's the English translation. It is the site of today's Bar Harbor, Maine. There he encountered some of the local Indians, and after an exchange of fish and fur for French biscuit and sundry other trifles, they offered to take them to their chief, named Bazabez, up the nearby Penobscot River. Bazabez ruled from a village at the Fall Line, roughly today's Bangor, Maine, and was the chief we already met as Bashaba when we were there with Englishman George Weymouth in the run-up to the Popham colony back in episode 53. But on our timeline, that encounter will not occur for another nine months in June 1605. That was just as well for Champlain, because Weymouth would kidnap five Indians to bring back to England, which would not make the job of the Popham colonists any easier. But you know all of that already. Champlain, however, would make friends with Basabez Bashaba. He approached boldly, but with only a few men and no visible weapons. He was received well, and they feasted and traded and smoked tobacco and ended up partying all night until dawn. Among his other attributes, Champlain had, in Fisher's words, a remarkable gift of social stamina. From Bangor, Champlain headed back down the Penobscot River and then continued south along the coast, aiming for the Kennebec River on the advice of the Indians. You will recall that three years hence, the West Country investors of the Virginia Company would establish the Popham Colony at the mouth of the Kennebec. The Champlain did not get there on this trip. The winds turned against him, the temperature dropped, and the food began to run low. A few miles short of the Kennebec, he turned the Patash around and got back to St. Croix Island on October 2nd, one month after he had left and just before the first snow of the long winter. He had not found a site for a settlement, but he had established cordial relations with the most important chief on the coast of Maine and learned a lot about the geography. Eight months later, in the spring of 1605, after the brutal winter on St. Croix Island, the Sir de Monde decided to lead another expedition along the coast of Maine to look for a warmer spot to settle. He took Champlain along in a patache, probably the same one, and a married Indian couple to translate. The husband, who was Etchemin and an experienced trader, spoke the languages of the northern Indians. His wife, of the Amuchiqua tribe from Saco Bay in Maine, knew the languages of the southern tribes farther down the coast. Champlain was quite taken with a woman, whom, in his rendering, was of extraordinary grace and beauty. According to Fisher, she is the only woman ever to have been recorded on one of Champlain's exploratory voyages. Unfortunately for the French, she would leave the expedition for reasons that are not clear before she would become useful as a translator. The Sertemont and Champlain were close friends and at the same time approached Indians very differently. Sertemont was not cruel or violent, but he was diffident and uncomfortable mingling. He would stand board a ship and trade with the Indians at a distance, perhaps inviting them on board but not visiting their villages on the land. The Sertemont would never establish the rapport with the indigenous people that came so naturally to Champlain. 
This voyage would be longer in both time and distance, and would include explorations deep into Maine through the twisting waterways of the Kennebec and Back Rivers. In the first week of July, 1605, Sir de Mont Champlain would sail miles up both rivers, first to the site of today's Wiscasset, and then around to Merry Meeting Bay, north of today's Bath, Maine. Along the way, they met various Indians, but failed to have engagements with them worthy of reporting. Around July 8, they sailed out of the Kennebec River and headed south across Casco Bay. Champlain wrote that from offshore, he could see the tops of high mountains to the west, which are today the White Mountains of New Hampshire. They spent the night of the 9th of July on the shore near today's Portland, Maine, and then headed south toward Sacco Bay, arriving there on the 10th. The Sacco Indians were different from the nations up the coast. Fisher described Champlain's account, quote, Champlain wrote, They till and cultivate the land, a practice we had not seen previously. He went ashore and admired fields clean of weeds, with corn planted on small hills three feet apart, and bush beans that twined around the corn, with squash, pumpkins, and tobacco. Very long-standing and devoted listeners will remember this is the Three Sisters method of cultivation, practiced widely among the indigenous peoples of North America back in the day, and described, I believe, in the second episode of this podcast series. Back to Fisher. For tools they used, an instrument of a very hard wood in the shape of a spade, and the shells of horseshoe crabs. Champlain also described their fixed abodes and stocks of surplus food. He found large stores of nuts that had been harvested the previous year and vines with very fine berries. He observed the Indians remain permanently in this place and have a large wigwam surrounded by palisades on a high bluff. This place is very pleasant and as attractive a spot as one can see everywhere. But the French could not communicate with them. They were unable to make any alliance with the Sacco Indians. The next day, the Patash sailed the coast of today's New Hampshire, crossing into the territory of today's Massachusetts, and reached Cape Ann at today's Rockport, Massachusetts. There they had modest success communicating by signs and got the Indians to draw a map with charcoal of the coastline ahead. They described what would be the Charles River and Boston's Back Bay. But again, the language barrier was fundamentally insurmountable. So the Sir de Mont and an increasingly frustrated Champlain moved on. They made their way across Massachusetts Bay, apparently without sailing up the Charles, and reached Plymouth Harbor on July 18th. They continued to see huge populations along the fertile coast and had met with cordial but ultimately diffident Indians. On July 20th, they sailed around the arm of Cape Cod, which had been named that by Bartholomew Gosnold only three years before, but the French did not know it yet. They named it the White Cape. They reached the area of Nauset on the Atlantic side of the Cape on July 21st. The Sir de Mont resolved to visit the locals and see if the region would be suitable for settlement. He took an armed detachment of about 10 men, an inherently more hostile posture than Champlain usually assumed in these situations. 
They marched inland through ripening fields, and the French helped themselves to beans and squash without bothering to ask for permission. The Indians nevertheless greeted them politely, if not effusively, and by signs answered their questions about the weather in the winter. How deep did the snow fall? About a foot. And did the harbor freeze over? It did not. But then things got hostile. The next day, the Indians ambushed a French party sent ashore to fill water casks, and Champlain led an armed operation to rescue them. One Frenchman died in the skirmish, his body riddled with arrows. The French got out of Dodge. On July 25, 1605, the French set sail for the north, sailing far out from the coast of Massachusetts. As they went, they saw signal fires light on the coast and columns of smoke. The warnings were racing ahead of them. They did go ashore in Maine, where they heard news that only a few miles away there was an English ship, and that its crew had killed the five Indians under cover of friendship. That ship would have been George Weymouth's archangel, and he did not actually kill five Indians. He kidnapped them and took them back to England. The question is, why were the Indians south of Maine so hostile to the French? There are actually three reasons. Martin Pring, fool, and gallant. In a word, the English and their big dogs had poisoned the waters in 1603, just as we discussed back in the two episodes on the Popham Sagadahawk colony back in late December. And the Sir de Mont, kind and warm-hearted as he was to his fellow French, never mustered the courage to mingle with the Indians confidently and thereby overcome their very justified suspicions. By the summer of 1606, the French base was well established at Port Royal, Nova Scotia, and the Sir de Poutrincourt led a third mission, also with Champlain in tow. The Poutrincourt mission would sail through roughly the same territory as Dumont had done the year before, making it a bit farther, all the way around Cape Cod to Nantucket. The voyage would be a hot mess. Poutrincourt would have none of the virtues of either Champlain or Dumont, and several additional weaknesses. He approached the Indians with neither wisdom of Champlain nor the anxious diffidence of Dumont, and he did not earn the respect of his men and therefore could not restrain them even when restraint was essential. He grossly misjudged intertribal politics at Sacco Bay, in one instance bringing three hostile chiefs together for a conference against Champlain's advice, a diplomatic blunder that would unleash a hundred war canoes and six hundred warriors against the French. The French slipped away in the nick of time. On Cape Cod, Poutrincourt thought it best to try to overawe the locals, marching armed men through Indian villages in a show of force and planting large crosses to signify possession at any opportunity. In this, Poutrincourt had adopted exactly the tactics of the Spanish, which succeeded only insofar as they, in fact, overwhelmed the indigenous peoples. None of this was in keeping with the humanist vision of Champlain, Henry IV, with the intellectual architects of New France. If there had been any chance of the French settling south of today's Canadian border after Martin Pring, fool and gallant, Poutrincourt ended it. 
New France would henceforth be the true north, and Champlain would ensure that France and the Indians of that region would remain in alliance for the better part of two centuries. As for Norumbega, it would remain free of European settlement for another 14 years until the pilgrims came to the Cape and chose to settle at an Indian village called Patuxet in 1620. At that time, the huge indigenous population of the Donlan would have collapsed. Casualties of a virulent pandemic that would strike the region within 10 years of Poutrincourt's voyage of 1606. But we are not finished with Champlain. In 1609 and again in 1615, he would lead devoted Algonquin allies to war against the Iroquois of the region, and in so doing and a long period of brutal war among the tribes of upstate New York, eastern Ontario, and southern Quebec. This is a convenient place to stop for today. This episode's a bit longer than I prefer, even without the usual happy-go-lucky soundbite, which I admit I was not in the mood to do. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.